Greetings and salutations, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Risk and Reels. Uh, today, I am joined by my buddy, Dave Elfrin. Uh, David is a senior vice president in Marsh's Emerging Risk Group. Uh, before he was at Marsh, he worked at Resource Pro, a global insurance services firm. And for 23 years before that, and this is where I knew Dave from, he worked at Werner Enterprises, which is a huge, huge transportation and trucking conglomerate. Uh, so welcome, Dave. It is so nice to see you. It's been a couple of years, I think, since since we talked, and uh, I am glad you've decided to join us today. Yeah, awesome. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. We've both made some changes, and I'm sure we're going to cover that. So, um, you know, we've we got to talk about the black and white look here, but I'm sure we're going to get to that. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, that's actually a, a perfect segue. I love when people do that. So uh, as everyone who's watched the podcast knows, uh, this podcast is really a mixture of movie talk and cybersecurity and risk talk. So I'm going to hit you with a question, Dave. You mentioned black and white. So what is your favorite black and white movie? You know, I, as a photographer, I am enamored with the use of black and white in ways that elude the public. They're like, why did you do that in black and white? It would look better in color. But the answer is I love almost any movie in black and white. You can go back to the 20s and the 30s, and I'll watch those. And more recently, uh, Nebraska um, with that Alexander Payne shot that. And the only thing is when I watch a movie in black and white, I find myself getting lost in the art of it. And sometimes I don't even pay attention to the movie. But almost anything in black and white, it's really for the effect and the art. All right. Awesome. I, I love that. I, uh, I used to do photography quite a while ago. Now it's gotten to the point where it's so easy to shoot stuff on the iPhone. I probably don't pay much attention to the, uh, to the, the artistic stuff, but, uh, great. Love, love that perspective. I'll, I'll share real quick. So, uh, when I was a young, poor person, uh, I moved into the apartment that was previously inhabited by a friend of mine and, uh, he moved back to the UK so I decided I was going to see how long I could um, get cable without actually paying the bill before they canceled me. Turns out it was three months. Nice. But when they canceled, I wanted to wait a little bit. So I actually watched a lot of videotapes. So now I'm sharing my, uh, my age a little bit. But one of the videotapes that I loved was Treasure the Sierra Madres, which to me is may, it may be my favorite movie, period. Um, but I think to your point, one of the great things is the – the black and white, you don't get distracted. And, and I think I was able to focus on the story. And to me, if you haven't seen that movie, everyone out there, you must check it out. It is a portrait of a man slowly going insane. And uh, Humphrey Bogart is just uh, amazing in it. I do think black and white photography in particular is super, super interesting. Um, we, my wife and I and some friends were uh, African safari over the summer. And I actually took some of the pictures we took and uh, used Photoshop to put them into black and white. And um, the, the impact, I think it's just so much more emotional of, of an impact. Um, and, and I think it also keeps you from having to focus on things like color balance that I think, uh, I think can be, can be distracting. So yeah. awesome. All right. Great. I'll talk um, camera into black and white mode specifically. Then you tune it and you put a red filter on and you just, you know, it, 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 it isolates things in a way that color you color. You're like, isn't the flower beautiful? What's beautiful about it? Well, I like the color. Okay. What else you got? You know? So. Yeah. The, the shadows and the contrast in black and white, I think are definitely, uh, definitely much, much more interesting. So, all right, cool. 
So um, part of the way that, that Dave, you and I kind of got relinked up uh, pretty recently on LinkedIn was around some posts that were made on risk quantification. Um, yeah. And that's been a, a topic I think that's really, really interesting. Um, you know, prior to uh, arriving at Black Kite when I was at Gartner, uh, which of course is where we met, um, we had seen a huge uptick in interest on, dare I say, ROI, which I hate to talk about for a variety of reasons, but we start to see a lot of CFOs getting more involved and saying, well, you want X dollars. What do I say? What do I make? So, right, what's the opposite of, of that equation? And, and, one of the things that I used to see all the time was CISOs would run into this conversation. So I need a million dollars. And the CFO would say, well, what if we don't give you a million dollars? And the CISO said, well, we think something really bad might happen, right. maybe, but we don't know, right? So I think risk quantification is is super, super uh, sort of relevant and, and recent. And, and I know kind of what triggered my reach out was the fact that you just uh, got your FAIR certification. So Talk a little bit about that. Why, why'd you look at FAIR and why'd you get certified, right? You know, if people at our career stage, I don't know that certifications are always super critical. So let's talk a little bit about that. So it was a bit of a commitment that I made. So my fascination with FAIR goes back about a decade. Um, And I I picked it up because, you know, I was, I was like a, a director, a senior director or something, kind of middle management. And, but I was starting. To, I was talking to the senior executives, and I was talking a little bit to the board. And this thing always came back to money, right? Because boards, executives, they're like, "Great, how much am I paying? Why should I do this? Why should I not do this?" And as a director in a CISO role, I couldn't always tell them. And sometimes that led to, you know, it was frustrating for them. It was frustrating for me. And so I found this vehicle that said, "Hey, you can, you can, you know, figure out." you know, how likely something is to happen. Um, not predicting the future, but that's a whole different part of the discussion. But if, how do I have a relevant discussion with stakeholders? And FAIR was the first vehicle that I saw that did that. And it was unique for, for a number of years. So a lot of us looking for business relevance rushed in and said, aha, we've got the Rosetta Stone. We can unlock the secrets of the universe and interpret executive mind and and have a discussion and we did have some discussions i don't think we had too many home runs though i mean this is a challenge with fair which was uh there's a lot of process there's a lot of even my own team would say well you know this whole fair thing it makes sense because you're you're a numbers guy but i don't see how it has anything to do with me administering firewalls and the then the the this follow-on discussion was how we manage risk has everything to do with how you manage firewalls. So it led me to those discussions. And so I did implement FAIR uh, at the transportation company I worked at. One of my uh, senior most people got extremely good at it. And we did solve some problems, some good sized problems. We also created some problems because uh, when you when you present quantitative results, Suddenly, you're explaining what a Monte Carlo is, and why is why is this set of results a little bit different than this? And it's because you're running three different independent Monte Carlo simulations, and the idea of simulation is there's a certain degree of randomness in there. And suddenly, the CFO goes, "Well, wait, this decimal point and this decimal point don't equal. Therefore, your whole thing is invalid." But so my my the reason for going back to fair 
really had to do with that foundation and showing, yeah, I've, I've got that foundation. I could talk about it. It wasn't a, a difficult certification after all the years that I worked with it. Um, but I, I, it was a commitment to kind of myself to, to kind of finish that chapter because there's other chapters that are emerging based on quantitative methodologies. Yeah, you know, you're right. Uh, Spare was definitely the first one. There's a bunch of other stuff out there. Um, I think Fair, Fair, I agree with you, Fair holds sort of a, a near and dear place in my heart, largely because when I was at Gartner, I spent a lot of time talking about how not good it was. And and I know um, you, you've had numerous conversations with my former colleague, Paul Proctor, oh, yeah. uh, about Fair and, and how it works. I do want to just backtrack a little bit because um, – it's possible some of our viewers are not really familiar with FAIR. And you mentioned Monte Carlo simulations. And right. um, I know obviously Monte Carlo is where you go to gamble. But can you can you tell our, our viewers, what is a Monte Carlo simulation? And why is it important for, for really any assessment? So for an assessment, you know, classically, if we're going to de- we're, we're assign a risk level to something, in the old days, we'd go kind of gut level. But how do we feel about this? or we'd use CVSS scores or something like it to make something red. And so the premise of FAIR is let's define a, let's, let's define a scenario, right? People say, well, risk, cloud is risk. No, cloud is a thing. The risk involves in how you use it. So let's talk about how we use something, how we configure something. Let's, let's hone in on a scenario. And so for the scenario, we define, you know, What's involved? We have something of value, the asset. What's the threat to the asset? What's the effect? And these are th- actually utilized components. Most people as CISSP would be aware of confidentiality, integrity, and availability. We've heard those 8 million times. Um, it'll probably be on my tombstone somewhere. But we take Hopefully those- Hopefully not too soon, though. Yeah, no, no not soon. Yeah. <laughs> if it's on my tombstone, then I, then I went to the, to the down there place and not someplace good. But um, so we take those things, we have, a, we, have a, we have a scenario and we talk about the components of the, what that threat is. And then we, we look for numbers, right? We want to reach what a, a reasonable, not scientific, but a reasonable set of not a guess, but based on experience. So we might say, what's the what's the least number of times we know based on our data something happens? What's the most amount of times we've seen it? And what's the most likely value? And so we we apply those certain numbers to the scenario. And this is where the Monte Carlo comes in. So a Monte Carlo actually goes back to the, the warfare quantification um, efforts. It, it was a it's a way to project something when you have a level of uncertainty. And this brings us to really the core of risk, which is uncertainty about what's going to happen and how do you answer that uncertainty? So the Monte Carlo is a tool that basically call it a boxing match, right? There's always that boxing match. You know, somebody goes, you know, Muhammad Ali versus some new boxer and they run a simulation and it's essentially Monte Carlo. They might run that thing 50,000 times or 100,000 times. And out of that 100,000 times, there's a range of randomness, but there's a tendency based on that most likely, least likely, and most likely, right? Those those constraints and this how uh, certain and confident we feel 
and the confidence matters. So based on 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 the Monte Carlos that you run, let's say you run fifty thousand of them, they're gonna they're gonna fall across a spectrum in terms of probability, which gives you a curve of likelihood. And so if you have a curve that goes all the way to the left, you wow, something's really likely to happen because that's on the scale of if it hasn't happened, it's gonna happen before you finish blinking your eye, most likely, and then you've got, you know, you've got this range or a loss exceedance curve that tells you in the next year something, there's a strong probability of this bad thing happening with, you know, 60% probability. And so the Monte Carlo gives you that curve. It's, it, we're, we're taking mathematical means to remove the uncertainty and rank or risk. That was a, a great explanation, Dave. You know, I've been uh, I've been looking at fair for for a long time, and it's always nice to hear other people sort of take it how they articulate. And I, you know, I always learn I always learn how to be a more effective communicator by hearing other people's stories. So I do. I just want to kind of circle back because I think you you hit on something really important, right? Which is this range of potential values. I think we know, and you know, you you've run security programs, and we've all made the the the. Um, misstep of going in front of business people and telling them, well, the risk is $1,319,235.33. And we know when we say that, they don't believe us because even CFOs can't get to that level of precision. So I think one of the great things about FAIR is that it allows you to come up with a range. This risk is between 1 million and 1.2 million, and we're 95% confident that it's going to fall in between those ranges. And I think it gives us a, a much better level of, of believability. So, all right, awesome. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about the dark side of FAIR, right? You know, FAIR has a bit of a reputation. Um, it's not always super easy to use. Um, it requires people to know things that maybe they don't always feel that comfortable with. I mean, you've you've done the training. I did the training. I didn't bother with the with the certification, but I've done the training. And they talk a lot about calibration. And if you're familiar with Doug Hubbard's work, he talks a lot about that risk calibration. He has you know kind of tests that you can take to help figure out whether you're you know risk averse, risk seeking, etc. So. So let's talk a little bit about what did, what did you see as maybe the two or three biggest challenges when you implemented FAIR, uh, you know, in a variety of different places? You know, I think one of the first challenges was that FAIR challenges us to think about risk in a way we haven't, right? It, it, it has a disciplined process around it. Instead of walking in and going, holy blank you know, there's 9,458 CVSS 9 to 10 vulnerabilities. They may or may not all matter, right? But this is classically how we do it. And we roll out these big red numbers. We'd go in, try to come in like thunder and just scare the hell out of everybody, right? I want to scare people with these big numbers. Then scare didn't work anymore. And they're like, you know what? You told me this two-headed sea monster was going to come out of the ocean and eat me. Didn't happen. I, you know, I, I don't believe, you know, I... I you lose, you lose credibility, right? Doing those things. And so to me, coming back to fair is that credibility factor of we've studied this and it's not perfect, but here's the difficulty of fair, which is it challenges you. So my own team sometimes were like, you know what? I don't know. This just seems like hocus pocus to me. I, I just configure a firewall and, you know, so it challenges the terminology, right? We come up with the standard terminology and not everybody wants to use it. 
if you take a fair, if you become certified in fair, or you just take the training, and then you try to listen to the CISSP track about annualized loss expectancy, you'll lose your mind because it's like, you know, I, I am not trying to be a fair fanboy or whatever the term is, but sometimes the way we've described risk is not functional, which brings you back to a Doug Hubbard point, which is maybe one of the most common, the common element of risk is when it's poorly managed, it actually adds more risk because it doesn't solve anything. But back to the challenge of fair. So you got the terminology, you've got the challenge to the process, of man, you know, to your mindset, to the terminology that we like to use, and it does require a process. Here's the other point is, if you're going to use FAIR, when I started doing it, there was only one way to do it, and it was through risk lens. And God love risk lens. So glad that you know Jack Jones founded risk lens and came up with this methodology, but all roads led to Rome or risk lens. And so then if I wanted to use it in an industrial or, you know, a corporate setting, um, I, I was led back to risk lens. So it was a great, um, a great feeder mechanism and the combination of the complexity, the singularity of the vendor space five years ago, for example, has, I think, combined to what I would call quantitative fatigue. People have become fatigued with it. It was a hot thing. You know, the National Association of Corporate Directors said, oh, my God, you should use FAIR. It's just, you know, great risk method, great risk management methodology. But we didn't produce as much as we should. We didn't solve as many problems as we should. So that's part of it. I think there is there is some uh, there is some fatigue with quantitative approaches. Okay, so I'll kind of kind of share what I, what as as sort of an outsider guiding people who are doing this. What what I've seen have been two challenges. Um, one you kind of talked about, which is people aren't always comfortable with coming up with, you know, likelihoods and impacts and and those things. And I think a lot of it as a leader, we need to figure out how we can think about it differently, right? So what I always told people as well. You could say, yes, there's a 20% likelihood, but what if instead we said, this is something we think will happen once every five years, right? That resonates, I think, a lot better. Yeah. And then we just flip it and we can then plug that that number in. But I'll tell you, and you, you talked about this, to my mind, the hardest thing to do in the area where most people struggle, especially early, is in the scenario creation, right? And you talked about it. First of all, we know there's a nomenclature problem. We've all been dealing with this, right? Risk and vulnerability and threat and all those kinds of things. And I think sometimes we spend so much time defining the words, we sort of forget about the underlying concept. So I think that's part of it. But I think the the, the issue around defining scenarios to me has always really been a challenge because they need to be pretty specific. And I think some people, yeah, like, you know, you can't say, well, the scenario is, um, you know, losing PII, right? Because you can lose PII from inside a threat. You can lose it by accident. You can lose it by external attackers. So can you can you share a little bit of your sort of experience on on how you led your team, right? Because you, you've a couple of times talked about, you know, the right. firewall folks going, well, what do firewalls have to do with this? So can we talk a little bit, share your experience with how did you lead the team through that process to get the scenarios where they were useful? 
you know, the, the first time I tried to utilize FAIR, I did not have realizable expectations. I really didn't have an understanding, but I had read it. I read Jack's book, you know, and I spent a lot of hours on it. And then, you know, I was engaged with risk lens and they came in and said, okay, we're going to have to talk about this scenario. I'm like, yeah, all right. Like, you know, so I'm like, well, let's talk about PII risk. You, you foretold exactly what happened to me. And they were like, great. PII where? Uh, Inside my company? (laughs) Like, you're going to have to give us more to go on than that. Um, But, you know, at the end, so the way that we engaged was, all right, we defined this scenario. It was useful for my team because it related to data that they had, things that they knew. So we said, okay, we're going we're gonna to talk about PII within an application and the scenario involves uh, account takeover, you know, somebody getting fished, their account gets um, breached and that, bre- that account information is used to access and remove PII data. And suddenly they went, oh, I get it. We're talking about phishing in a way that's relevant to somebody's account to access an internet accessible application and get to millions of PII records, which, you know, that they identified with that. Um, but it was difficult getting there. That was a few hours of difficult discussion because I did not come into it with, I mean, when the leader comes in going, I don't know, PII, and they're like, where? I'm like, duh, inside of the company. Right. Did you, did you find that over time the team got more comfortable and you were able to get to the good scenarios more rapidly? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we had more buy-in from, so what we figured out is the security team, really it was my GRC team that dealt in this more. So in the end, the firewall guy, it was useful for him to know. And we standardized on the terminology. And we said, when we're talking about risk, we're specifically talking about the risk of the loss of money, right? We're talking about financial impact. All right, good. Um, Same thing, internal audit. I included internal audit in the training class that I, for the instructor instructor that I brought on site, they absolutely loved it. And it, and it proved to be a very useful construct. So that adoption was sped along by that. The GRC team was where we, you know, of course, you know, risk was a component. The senior, I had one person in particular that became extremely good at talking to the business, you know, so that analyst and I, worked together, we put to, you know, we worked and we engaged with the business to say, we need a loss table. We need to know, you know, for this part, for this thing that we do, these value offerings, what the loss table for those things are. And so I had one person in particular that that became very good at it, at at those discussions with the business. Uh, They wound up creating the loss tables for specific lines of business, specific times of day, days of the week, and the whole the whole nine yards so that we had very, we were able to, as fair would say, achieve a useful level of uh, precision and accuracy, right? That combination, because you're never going to be hundred percent precise, right? Uh, but so it, it came down to, you know, the people that I needed to know how to do this learning and everybody else, at least understanding the terminology. So that, that was probably six to nine months. You'd think, wow. Well, okay. Yeah. yeah, you know, that's, I think that's important for people to understand, right? I think um, sometimes people want an easy solution, and I think easy is frequently not the best. 
right? You know, you there's always that balance, right, between accuracy and ease of use and practicality and and all that. And and I think you you hit on something really important, right? It's we need to make decisions. Do we have enough information to to make those decisions? And I think that's a really really important thing. So uh, great great discussion, Dave. Um, one one last thing before we send everyone on their their merry way. Any tips or tricks for people that are looking at doing fair? Maybe some, maybe one or two things they have to do, and one or two things they definitely should not do. You know, I, I think training is the first thing. Um, it maybe costs twelve hundred bucks, fifteen hundred bucks. Take the take the risk lens training. It is one of the best risk courses end to end. Maybe in the end you decide you don't want anything to do with fair, but the consistency of terminology may lead you to adopt that by itself. Maybe you never do anything else. Um, and the, the, the fundamental approach, the language, the process works great. You know, go take the training, get your people trained on it. The second thing is, you know, find a useful first quick win, right? CISOs always talk about quick wins and then they go on a 24 month project, right? But you can find quick wins. And one of the ways that, that we did this was we engaged with Risk Lens. We did what they call a Panda. It's kind of a funny story. You ever go through Panda Express? You're like, well, it's a meal. It's a decent meal. It's satisfying, but it's not a full meal, right? It's not what you would, it's, you, you wouldn't do it for Thanksgiving, probably. No judgment if you go to Panda Express for Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Um, so look for you know a scenario that you can try and get a result. Try that result out. At the same time, build those communications with your stakeholders, your business stakeholders. Maybe you're working with the board. Well, let's not try this with the board first. Let's try your executive stakeholders. Um, Work with your CFO, right? Learn about your business. These are all good things. Do you have a loss table? Do you understand the schedule with which the company will lose money in the event of an outage or a business interruption? And this applies to ransomware. It applies to all kinds of things. You can reuse all of those things without ever using fair. So that, that part's good. Um, things not to do. Um, I think number one is don't assume that in the next 24 months, you've had this initial success that you are going to find it easy sledding in terms of breaking out these, you know, scenarios, finding, analyzing the scenarios, you know, you're going to have an uphill fight, finding people that, Understand fair methodology is not easy. Uh, understanding people that even finding people that want to do it may not be easy, right? Your classic security analyst is like, that's great, but it doesn't have anything to do with this pen test. Well, it has everything to do with the pen test, depending on your outlook. So I'd say don't buy in wholesale too early. Take the classes. Get you know educated about it. Don't go to a thirty-minute uh, podcast and decide. You know what? Fair's for me. Um, you know, you're making life. You're making life changes. Um, might you might want more than a commercial uh, to do that. So you know, don't bite off more than you can chew. Be systematic about it. Don't overcommit out of the gate um, because you may find that it, it may not be a perfect fit for you. The approach and the structure of it are going to be absolutely productive. 
but you may have to find good partners, for example, that can help you with this journey. So those okay. are some of the... All right. Awesome. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. And, um, you know, I think I agree with you. And I think everything you said was was super wise. I think having realistic expectations, I think the scenario, I think the training, um, I think looking for partners and, and um, you know, this is something that we at Black Kite do, right? We have FAIR implemented as part of our uh, third-party risk management platform. And right. we pre-populate a lot of the fields of the ontology and we have clearly defined scenarios. And I think that's super, super important. And, and I think, um, you know, I think FAIR has a lot of power, but it's got to be used the proper way. And I think to your point, if you if you go to people and say, let's do this and it's going to solve all our problems, I think right. you're setting yourself up for, for failure. So, all right, Dave, this was awesome. Thank you so much. It was great to, to talk and get your, your perspective on FAIR. So just to kind of recap, um, Dave loves photography. Black and white movies are definitely something he really likes. Uh, Nebraska is one that he pointed out, so definitely check that out. Um, Haley, our producer, likes The Wizard of Oz. And uh, I like Treasure of the Sierra Madre, so I think you should check out all those movies. Uh, definitely let us know what you thought about that. Um, again, Dave, thank you so much for joining. Um, this has been another episode of Risk and Reels. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay secure. Cheers, everyone. Thank you for listening to Risk and Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by Blackkite, the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions.